Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. The power just went off where I live and I'm still able to record this podcast, keep my lights on and do what I have to do at home. It's raining outside and there's no sunshine and there won't be for the rest of the day, but I'm confident I'll be okay. Even with the low light, my solar panels, says the app on my phone, are producing 517 watts and the batteries, all three of them are contributing 134, 134 watts, and the house appears to be consuming 720 watts. So I expect the batteries to slowly discharge and then recharge whenever ESCOM flickers briefly back into life um, during the course of the afternoon and evening. We're at stage six, says ESCOM this morning, indefinitely. Isn't that just peachy? President Saul Ramaphosa, as far as I know, still hasn't appointed the electricity minister he promised us two weeks ago at the same time as he declared we were in a state of disaster you have to wonder why if things are that bad why it's taking so long more likely than not uh, he does it because he knows all his decisions are political and he hasn't yet finished working through the possible consequences of his appointee whoever that happens to be failing at the job my guest today is almost everyone's go-to guy for answers about our electricity crisis. Professor Anton Eberhardt is director of the Power Futures Lab at UCT's Graduate School of Business and advisor to uh, Sir Ramaphosa on energy issues and, and one of the architects of the National Development Plan, under which, although we may not now be aware of it, the president still believes he is, you know, running the our economy up until 2030. Anton, thank you so much for making time. Just on the appointment of this electricity minister, whoever it might be, is there any space between the ministers who currently pay attention to the utility, public enterprises, energy, the president himself, is there any space for a new person to make any difference to our power supply? Good to chat with you again, and I see you um, suffering from the syndrome PSJ, um, uh, post-solar joy. Uh, and what it's, <laughs> yes. one of its uh, characteristics is Schadenfreude for those that don't have rooftop soda. No, I don't. I feel I feel I have no Schadenfreude. I'm I'm so I'm so lucky, uh, and I recognise that. The other characteristic is holding out your uh, cell phone and and uh, showing the, the <laughs> app with how much you're producing. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, good, good question. Uh, and. And it surprised many that President Ramaphosa made a, another appointment when he has ministers who have responsibility. Uh, and he's clearly done it because his energy minister has not delivered uh, and his public enterprises minister has not delivered. And I say that because he set very clear targets in, in his previous State of the Nation addresses around contracting new capacity on the one hand and on the other restructuring of ESCOM and, and that's not done. And it's quite striking to me that uh, Energy Minister Gwedi Mantasha seems quite disinterested in the National Electricity Crisis Committee and the energy plan that it's developed for President Ramaphosa. I, I haven't heard uh, Mantasha speak to that plan once. Instead, he talks to a very reduced and simplistic version with four points that he repeats again and again. And he says, fix, fix the broken plant at ESCOM. Uh, but he doesn't say, 
how it should be done differently to what's currently be done by ESCOM. He says uh, procure some emergency power. He doesn't say which, but we presume car power. He says import some more electricity from the region, but he doesn't tell us that actually there's very little additional power there to to import. And then he says we've got to up up our up up the skills levels. Okay, that seems seems a fair point. Uh, and it was really striking to me that in in the ANC Lachotla, it wasn't the energy minister that communicated the uh, Ramaphosa's energy plan. It was Pravin Gordon, um, uh, the ESCOM minister. And so he, he clearly feels there is a gap and and hopefully uh, an electricity minister will, will fill that gap. Of course, he could have replaced his energy minister, but we know um, and appreciate some of the politics around that. Uh, a new electricity minister could facilitate and fast-track some of the good work that is coming out of the National Electricity um, Crisis Committee, and we could perhaps talk about what some of those areas. Yeah. Well, just talk. Talk. Let's do. Let's do that now. I mean, the 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 National Electricity Crisis Committee is basically a, a cabinet committee, right? It it seems to be largely made up of ministers, um, uh, with advice from I'm not sure Anton outsiders like yourself or or. Um, what is it that it's doing that cheers you up? Oh, you, you said I was still doing advisory work. I actually do relatively little uh, these days. Ah. I'd like you and enjoy my solar and battery system at home. But um, so, so NECOM, the National Electricity Crisis Committee, is an interministerial committee, and uh, its DGs meet regularly, and the secretariat for that committee uh, for that committee is effectively Operation Volendlerner. So a lot of the okay. structural forms that they have been trying to fast track uh, are part of the work of, of that committee and part of the, uh, the the work that they do around smoothing regulatory barriers for new investment are very much part of that that that, that committee. There are there are a range of plans, aren't there? I mean, there are the, the board has a plan. The um, National Electricity Crisis Committee does has a has has a plan. President had a plan which he announced last July. Guerre uh, Mantashe, as you say, has a four point plan. Pravin Gudai has a plan. He's got to still, you know, years later, separate the transmissions company out of it. Where do we? Where are South Africans supposed to be looking to for solid, something solid that they can measure the progress of? Surely the board. I mean, the board. It took them three years almost to to put this board together after the resignation of Jabu, the late Jabu Mabuza. Why is the you know the board was just blown away within a week of announcing its plan, which seemed to me kind of vaguely sensible? Uh, the, and the NEC of the ANC came back and said, "No, it's just too you're taking too long. We want to end load shedding this year, obviously, because there's an election coming up next year." Look, the ESCOM. Uh board plan is primarily focused on ESCOM's generation recovery plan, right? How, how to effectively improve the energy availability factor, the availability yeah. generation plant. Of course, it does recognize that in order for it to do that, it needs to have more of a reserve margin. 
so that it can actually take plant off uh, and, and fix them. And to get that res reserve margin up, it needs more generation capacity on the grid, and that's not within its current uh, uh, abilities or capabilities given given its uh, stress balance sheet. It can't finance new generation capacity itself. And so it requires parallel activities to be done to, to fast track that. And 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 so so you said where where should we look? I, I think very much the set of plans from the uh, from NECOM, the National Electricity okay. Crisis Committee. They they are you know these five broad areas that I that I laid out. They yeah. mine work streams which are slightly confusing. But in in their recent summaries they they have laid out a lot of concrete steps with timelines. So there is something there to track. I think they are being yeah. oddly too optimistic. I don't think they will achieve everything that they hope to achieve this year and next, uh, including uh, uh, ending load shedding. I, I, I think there's almost zero chance that load shedding will end this year or even next year. Uh, and I think, as you've intimated earlier, that's part of the panic within the governing party at the moment, where they come, try to come up with desperate measures that they hope will do something, you know, move ESCOM to to the energy ministry or a state of disaster. Um, but those aren't the things that will move the, the needle. That it, it, it will be the full range of actions that are laid out in the econ plan. I mean, I was interested in you know, the the board made the mistake before the, um, the politicians had had a chance to um, to have a look at their plan of announcing it and giving and 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 giving itself deadlines. It has a deadline, for instance, at the end of March next month of restoring ESCOM's energy availability factor to sixty to sixty percent. Yeah. Um, there's no chance of it making that if we were at yeah. stage six. Indefinitely now, right? And they've they've admitted that now. They they will miss that target. I think they uh, have then said they want to get up to um, what was it, sixty five percent by the end of financial year twenty four, and then up to seventy yeah. financial year twenty five. Yeah, um, that doesn't go down too well if you're looking for re-election. <laughs> yeah, look. We should remember there are some very big units out at the moment on working long-term yeah. damage. So um, at Kusila, units one to yeah. three had those duct failures. Uh, unit five had a fire in its gas heater system. Uh, unit four at Madupi uh, had that hydrogen explosion, and then we've got half of Quebec off to yeah. steam generators. If you add. Just those units together, that's four and a half thousand megawatts. So that's yeah. in four and five stages of load shedding. So that, those are big ones. Uh, and then, uh, as you've seen, they've said that they will focus on six priority power stations that are performing extremely poorly. A station yeah. like Tatuka, which has an energy availability factor below 20%, uh, Duva, Matuba, Matler, Kindle, uh, are others of of those stations that they will focus on, and they mm. they've got quite ambitious plans there. I, I, I mean, they're, they're going to have to prove and show us and demonstrate that they will be able to achieve those targets. The the the, the damage at at um, 
kusile. With, with this is this is with the ducks, right? The three that join that seem to join that tall uh, chimney um, in, in in the same place. Is it even remotely possible to repair that without taking that chimney down? I mean, this is a very tall structure, um, which was probably damaged in that accident internally anyway. Um, do we can we have confidence? Do you think, Anton, in the engineering? capacity of uh, ESCOM to make a proper assessment of of what's happened there. In other words, you know, that... They're not doing this assessment uh, just by themselves, and they, they're certainly yeah, I'm sure. bringing in engineering expertise. But you, you're uh, quite right to raise concerns that that's a very large structure, and if it did collapse, it would cause very significant damage in, in the plant. So this is part of the current assessments. Uh, remember also in part why this is a special case. So Kusila is the only ESCOM power station that has flue gas desulfurization. So removing sulfur dioxide and the nitrous oxides yes. from the gas. Those are the pollutants which uh, when dispersed with rain and create acid rain, sort of acidic. Yeah. Very damaging. And so ESCOM has a zero prior experience in running these flue gas desulfurization units, which was partly why these uh, ducts collapsed. There was a, uh, they were running the units too hard. Uh, there was a buildup of, of uh, residue, and the weight of this collapsed the ducts. So uh, there's lots to fix there. It's not just the structural components. It looks like they will have to build a temporary, temporary chimney. Uh, to yeah. quite quickly while they, the longer term work gets done on the main main chimney stack, yeah. and then they're going to have to revise op operational procedures there as well. That's a that's a huge job, though, is it not? I mean, first of all, they've got to get permission to do the to do the temporary fix. Um, presumably, Minister Barbara Creasy will be helpful. Although um, my understanding is that um, there's a there's a competition or rivalry between her. And Guerre Mantashe, particularly at uh, at uh, Minerals and Energy, um, so maybe she won't. There's some very big issues uh, ahead of us there. So it's not just this temporary environmental exemption to to bypass the flue gas desulfurization mm. and and to install this temporary chimney at Kusile. The big issues are are ESCOM's failure to meet uh, minimum emission standards under the Air Quality Act. Mm. So it's mm. running out of time. It's it has temporary postponements, but those are all running out now. So there's huge decisions around whether they can extend these. It would be very difficult legally to do so. But of course it has massive consequences if ESCOM more ESCOM power stations need to close because of not meeting uh, environmental standards. Are those standards that we have imposed on ourselves, or that we've agreed internationally to to meet? Yeah, no. These these are this is national legislation. Yeah. And presumably, we have. I know that certainly in one loan uh, from the World Bank to South Africa, I think it was an I think it was a World Bank loan, not an IMF loan, uh, to do with the power station that has recently closed, and with World Bank financing is going to be turned into a renewable energy hub or, 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 or power station. Um, 
the, that World Bank money only gets only gets paid on condition that you are meeting international emissions targets. Now look, there, there are two things here. So the um, the World Bank loan, which is primarily for Madupi, um, also had the requirement that at some stage a flue gas desulfurization unit would be uh, installed. So it's it's uh, it's designed in a way that they can add that. Eskom delayed and delayed this decision, but you're right; it is a ultimately a requirement there, and it was certainly a requirement for Kusile. Um The issue of Kamati is, is is a slightly different one. That's around repurposing uh, some aspects of that power station, but it's relatively small amounts of renewables that will come from that site. Yeah. Anton, you wrote beautifully about a month ago, um, uh, warning of the dangers of of um, complying with the ANC conference resolution in December to move control of ESCOM from the Department of Public Enterprises to the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy, in other words, from Praveen Gordon to Greta Mantashe. It's amazing how little debate there is now about that. The president is not really ever said anything about it and i wonder what you you know is he is the appointment of this electricity minister his way of creating an obstacle or applying a break to that so that it can be done perhaps um whenever escom is you know fixed quote unquote um or you know is he is the is the appointment of this minister a way of soramaposa kicking the can down the road on moving control of ESCOM. Yeah, it was a it was an extraordinary uh, resolution for a conference and very uh, sort of ill thought out, especially given that there'd been two prior com- state-owned enterprises commissions. I mean, one in reporting in two thousand and thirteen, uh, and the current one under Rambaposa, which have been very clear about separating out the the asset holding and the financial sustainability aspect of SMEs from broader policy and regulatory concerns. And one can quickly see the potential conflicts of interest here. I mean, if ESCOM went to Department of Energy, ESCOM has 85% of our electricity generation. And then you have a minister who's uh, supposed to also be encouraging private sector investment. And uh, there could be clear conflicts there um, when it came Bush came to shove and, and, and whose interests he would he would follow. So internationally, the, the OECD, the, the sort of club of industrialized developed countries, their general best practice guidelines for state-owned enterprises are to always separate out these functions. A separate asset holding ministry whose sole purpose is to protect and, and expand and, and keep financially viable the assets of the state-owned enterprise versus a, a, a policy ministry. So, and I'm pretty sure the president um, supports supports that view. So, yes, it may well be that this uh, electricity minister appointment is a way to finesse that. Although it's obviously also primarily, as we uh, spoke about earlier, it's to start fast tracking the implementation of the. Uh, uh, the plan of of NECOM, because his energy minister is is plainly not doing that. While he waits for for some movement on that resolution in December, 
there's time for Guerra Mantasha to get up to lots of things. Um, uh, he's put himself, I think, in quite a powerful position. You know, he asked basically threatening or asking at least in public for Ramaphosa to choose between liberal analysts I suspect like yourself and journalists I suspect like me who oppose giving him ESCOM and the party who call for the move as we know now in December yeah, Matashi makes no bones about wanting car power ships in the ports perhaps not with a 20 year deal but you know a shorter one which would probably be more expensive is there any sense in car power ship at all even now that we're at stage six, again, um, is there any case, sustainable case for car power ship? So let's first remember that car power, car power ships, the, the, the three sites, and I believe there'll be five ships in total, uh, only amount to 1200 megawatts. And we are experiencing load shedding between 4,000 and 6,000 meg megawatts. So uh, car power ships are not on their own going to uh, solve load shedding. Of course, any additional megawatt on, on the system at the moment is welcome. The big drawbacks uh, for car power is they were extremely expensive. The price was linked to an international spot price for, for gas, and we saw what happened to those prices last year. Uh, and it was a very long contract, 20 years. Sort of almost unheard of. Emergency power ships are typically there for short-term solutions. So I, mm. I, I could see a possibility for a short-term contract, two, three years, uh, that would would help. Um, but there would need, I think, to be complete transparency on that deal, um, absolute clarity on what the prices are, uh, and I fear that under the regulations of the state of disaster, we might not have the requisite transparency to properly scrutinize that, that, that deal. Um, there's another aspect which, which, which I find worrying, and that is that those car power ships potentially sterilize any other land-based gas-to-power solution. And, so, and that would definitely be the case in Kukur, and probably in Soldana, maybe in in uh, Richards Bay, as we go forward now, and as we see the continual failure of ESCOM plant, uh, more and more of us are beginning to accept the view that uh, restoring uh, energy supply security is not just solar and wind and storage, batteries, but also would include, include some gas. And gas uh, engines or gas turbines that could be uh, repurposed at a later stage to green hydrogen, right? So that would be it, it would be um, a sensible transition in, in the long term as, as as well. So, so I wanted to talk a little bit about gas because it's 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 there and the and the, the debate um, uh, is out and happening in public. Um, there are people who think there is no case for gas. You say increasingly um, uh, people like yourself, are, and I know that you've always been a proponent of uh, a role for gas. Do you really, I mean, the, the national, I think it was the National Business Institute came out last year with a plan which included these 
sort of imports of gas by large freighters, right, which would liquefy it uh, and then feed it into infrastructure at um, at at some ports. Do we do we really need to build gas-fired power stations, or could we not just simply convert the peaking plant that we now don't have enough money to buy diesel for um, into burning gas rather than diesel? Isn't that the easier, less expensive way? So our, our primary need is is more capacity, right? More dispatchable power. Um, uh, what uh, converting existing peaking plant, the ESCOM peakers, and the two private uh, peakers, Haven and Adisa, will do is is just from diesel to gas would be mainly an economic impact, right? So the cost of of gas is likely to be cheaper than diesel, but to make a contribution to reducing load shedding, we need additional capacity. But that's where these FSRUs come in. These are these floating storage and regasification units with a pipe uh, onto shore to a new gas-to-power plant. That, that, that's where, where those ideas come in. And, and where would they be put? So almost certainly in the first instance uh, in Richards Bay, and that's where some of the initial uh, environmental impact assessment applications are being lodged and being opposed. So we'll need to see how that that plays out uh, in in time. And there's also some uh, uh, openness around what might happen off the south coast of Mossel Bay. So Total uh, Energy has these fairly significant gas discoveries, uh, the so-called eleven. B and 12B fields, Brilpada and Redpad. So there's a potential for that gas to land uh, and resupply the PetroSA gas to to petrol plant. Uh, It could convert the Khorika plant from diesel to gas, but you could also build a new gas-to-power plant there. So I was very uh, intrigued recently to see that the global CEO of Total Energy publicly expressing his frustration that he can't uh, get any um, substantive discussion going with policymakers in South Africa around that possibility, which I frankly find extraordinary. I find it extraordinary that our energy minister, who says he's in favor of gas, is not playing a leadership role around that that opportunity. Uh, there are some theories why. I mean, there are rent seekers circling around his department who don't see any way into a total energy uh, in terms in terms of contracts, but they do in terms of landing LNG there. But that's not an optimal solution for for Muscle Bay by by any by any means. Yeah. So we would and we would so we you you would build one or two gas fired new gas fired power stations. Do you think that's going to be what are we? How much are we talking about here? One point two, one two thousand megawatts. Well, I think I think quite substantive, substantive uh, amounts. I mean, if we're talking two, two to three gigawatts, uh, that would make a, a, a significant impact, along with renewables, right? I mean, so the very important work that has been done by Meridian Economics, where they took actual ESCOM data for last year and the year before, our only data. And they of of supply and demand and load shedding, and they said, what if we add some solar and wind that would produce in exactly the same 
profile that the existing solar and wind is, right? So it's not a not a theoretical exercise. It's it's a it's a real time modeling based on actual ESCOM data. And their their results were extraordinary. I mean for twenty twenty one uh, adding five gigawatts of solar and wind, producing in in that same profile as the existing fleet, would have reduced uh, load shedding by ninety six percent, which was incredible. And last year they reduced it by seventy percent. So that's... didn't Meridian also also conclude, Anton, that there was a very va- sort of a vanishingly small case for gas? They did in their. Uh, gas report, which is now 18 months old or more than a year old, I yeah. think on the basis of what... The case is growing. Exactly. As as, yeah. as this plant fails. So. Can I ask you just one last question? Because I've been told by the producers that um, our time is running out. Um, you made a point about not being much involved in advising politicians or not, but you have been, invi- you have been an advisor to President Ramaphosa for many years. Um, up until fairly recently. Um, is it, in your view, still worth the travel? I mean, does he listen Does he listen to advice or has he got his own playbook? I've always found it an extraordinarily positive and valuable and rewarding experience interacting directly with Ramaphosa. He, he listens carefully, um, he asks good questions, and he understands the case very quickly. So it's not a difficult process of, of trying to explain or persuade him around a position. And he quite quickly comes to a view of what should be done. The failure, you know, as as I highlighted in those two recent op-eds that I wrote, is that his ministers then have failed him but not followed through. And he hasn't managed his ministers. That's that's where the crisis lies. Yeah. Anton Hebert, um, Professor at UCT, one of South Africa's most highly regarded energy experts. Thank you so much for joining me. I much appreciate it. And I so appreciate you listening to my podcast. I'll see you back here again next week. Bye-bye.